0: And you're listening to Unusual Sources here on 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting in Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial, and the rest of the world at cfmu.ca. We have a special treat for you today. Listeners of this program may remember that we had an event here in Hamilton with the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, in which Dimitri Laskaris who is a leadership candidate for the Green Party, was able to converse with people about his platform and his goals in terms of becoming the leader of the Green Party and what he would do and how he would shape the party. So we had a Zoom conversation with interested persons, and um, some of you may have missed that and were curious about it. There might have been talk about it on Labor Day. So we're going to be making that available to you right now now dimitri Laskaris is a lawyer journalist and activist with extensive legal experience you can hear the full introduction for dimitri if you go to the hamilton coalition to stop the war website uh, hannah marcus from the coalition introduces him dimitri is going to speak for about 15 minutes and then there is an extensive question period which constitutes the bulk of this session I should mention that there is a leaders' debate Thursday. That's tomorrow at 7 o'clock, being hosted by Rabble. Uh, The Green Party candidates will be present, so you can learn more about this. But uh, we have quite an extensive discussion with Dimitri. It's been slightly shortened to fit in the radio slot, but most of it is there. So let's go
1: over to it now. Thank you very much for having me on this evening. It's a pleasure to be with so many comrades from the peace movement uh a, a tremendous respect and affection for so many of the people in this call i don't know you all uh but uh you are doing uh as lloyd blank bank fine of goldman sachs once infamously said god's work <laughs> so let me start by acknowledging that uh i am currently visiting ottawa and i'm on the land of the unceded territory of the algonquin Ashna Ashnabai people and The Algonquin people have lived on this land since time immemorial and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be present in this territory. Um, So I would, I I think it's useful for me to talk about the personal experiences which, uh, and personal history, which animate my views about foreign policy and international relations. And it has very much to do with the world in which, out of which my parents emerged when they came uh, to Canada. Uh, in the 1950s, as uh, impoverished immigrants with no high school education from a devastated Greece. And I, I make these remarks uh, without a hint of nationalism. For me, the fact that what I'm going to describe is a very painful part of Greek history, which leads up right up until the present time. Um, you know, it's not because I feel that Greek victims are more important than any other victims. I believe with every fiber of my being that all victims are equal and all oppressors must be held equally accountable. But this is an important part of my own personal experience, which has uh, informed my thinking about international relations in a profound way. Uh, Greece, uh, after shaking off a centuries-long uh, occupation by the Ottoman Empire, uh, had a tenuous grip on sovereignty for decades, You know, basically from the time of nominal independence uh, from the Ottoman Empire in 1825, and really was in many ways a vassal uh, for for decades of various Western powers and monarchies. And uh, during the Second World War, for the first time in Greek history, uh, communist partisans uh, achieved an unprecedented level of power uh, and influence within the country because of their rather successful resistance to the Nazi occupation. There were parts of the country that were uh, effectively off-limits to the Nazi forces because of that resistance. Uh, It's a resistance for which the communist partisans and uh, those who supported them paid a very uh, serious uh, and awful penalty. My parents, when I was a kid, described to me how in reprisal for uh, resistance by communist forces, the Nazis would round up all the villagers and randomly pick innocent civilians and execute them uh, before the eyes of others in order to deter resistance. And when the Nazis fled, uh, and it was one of the most brutal occupations that any European country had to endure, um, the Americans and the British became quite worried that a communist government was going to come to power within Greece. And after some uh, quite disgraceful negotiations with Stalin, uh, the Balkans were carved up such that the countries north of Greece in the Balkan region uh, came under the power and influence of the Soviet Union, but Greece was left to fend for itself, uh, under pressures of the American British governments. And uh, the Americans and the Brits gathered together a motley collection of monarchists, uh, right-wing neoliberals and Nazi collaborators, uh, and uh, mounted armed resistance to uh, the communists. And this led to a brutal and uh, bloody civil war. And the country was ruined enough as a result of the Nazi occupation. Uh, After years of uh, uh, of that terrible struggle. The country lay in ruins and my parents not having any desire to leave uh, were forced to do so because of an almost complete uh, lack of any kind of decent economic opportunities and they came to Canada uh, really out of economic desperation. And then some, so they they arrived in the 50s and I was born uh, in the 60s and uh, raised in London, Ontario in the 60s and 70s. In, my, in, in, in the, in the mid-70s, a moderately left-wing government managed to be elected within Greece, and the Americans were so alarmed at this development that they installed in power in a coup d'etat, a CIA agent by the name of George Papadopoulos, who was a colonel in the Greek military. And he was an out-and-out Nazi collaborator during the Second World War. And how do I know that he was a CIA agent? Because the American government admitted this in declassified documents years later. And the very first time I went to Greece, I remember I was, uh, I was about seven years old. It was during the dictatorship. My father, from the time I was a little boy, was very political. He was constantly engaging people in political debates. And when he took me to his village, I remember very distinctly sitting in the square with the villagers, uh, you know, many of whom he knew personally from his childhood. And he was trying to engage them in political debate and they simply wouldn't talk to him because they were terrified by the dictatorship of saying anything that might run afoul of, uh, of the dictator um, and ultimately uh, Papadopoulos was overthrown in large part due to the resistance of students at the uh, Athens Poly- Polytechnic, many of whom died uh, in, a, in an attempt by the dictatorship to crush the uprising and for many years the police and the military were forbidden from entering uni- university campuses in Greece that was recently changed by the way, but for many years they were forbidden from entering university campuses because of those awful events. And uh, ultimately uh, Greece shook off the dictatorship and uh, for some period of time, exercised probably what was in its history an unprecedented degree of sovereignty, but then came the Eurozone and the financial crisis of 2010. And uh, Greece uh, at that time, whose economy was very much a kleptocracy, uh, to be frank about it. But not that the Greek people were any less, less hardworking than any other Europeans, but uh, there was an oligarchy very much in power in Greece, which was robbing the country blind. And this oligarchy was in, was in control of the banking industry, and the banking industry was rampant with corruption and fraud and managed to borrow, nonetheless, huge sums of money from French and German banks, which, as a result of the global financial crisis, were themselves teetering on the brink of collapse in 2010. And so, to bail out the French and German banks, which had lent so much money to these corrupt and kleptocratic Greek banks, the uh, Eurozone and the IMF and the European Commission forced the Greek government to borrow uh, an insane amount of money for a country having so small an economy in order to uh, enable the corrupt Greek banks to pay off uh, their creditors, the European and French, uh, the French and German banks. That were treating teetering on the brink of collapse. This came to be known as the bailout of Greece. And in fact, it was not a bailout of Greece. It was a bailout of French and German ba- banks that was foisted upon the backs of the Greek people. And as a result of that, Greece's economy was devastated. It experienced a 25% contraction, the largest economic contraction in peacetime uh, any developed state has experienced in history, uh, certainly since the Second World War. The country experienced a brain drain of uh unprecedented proportions and a population of about 10 million people 500,000 people many of the, mo- the most educated greeks fled the country permanently a lot of them ended up in germany the country that had led the imposition of this vicious austerity regime the people the greeks who emigrated there and were integrated into the german economy had been educated by greek taxpayers at government expense uh, and today greece has lost virtually all of its productive capacity and is for all intents and purposes a dead colony so uh, where does this lead me? How does this inform my thinking? I'm keenly aware of the ways in which Western powers have sought to impose upon you know, far weaker countries that have demonstrated even a modicum of uh, you know, uh, uh, independence and sought to pursue their own sovereign ways, have imposed some of the most horrific suffering uh, that we have seen in our lifetimes. I can go on and on about the, uh, the dark history of the United States government, which Martin Luther King quite properly described as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world uh, today, just months before his assassination. This is perhaps even more true today than it was back in 1968 when he said it. We all know about the horrors inflicted upon the people of Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. We know that the United States government has subverted democracy around the world, including in the 1950s when it overthrew the government of Mohammad Mossadegh and a democratically elected Iranian prime minister because he had the audacity to want to nationalize the Anglo American oil company for the benefit of his own people. We know what happened in Chile. We know how the Americans uh, supported a military dictatorship in Brazil, a genocidal regime in Guatemala, how it destroyed Iraq how it has created or helped to create a failed state in Libya, the extraordinary suffering it is imposing upon the people of Venezuela, upon the people of Iran, in the name of human rights. And when we look across the landscape, uh, the terrible landscape of suffering in the post-World War II period, one culprit stands out amongst all others, and that is the government of the United States of America. The historical record is absolutely unambiguous in that regard. Of course, there have been many other states that have committed horrific human rights abuses and continue to do so. A great many of them, however, are proxies and allies of the United States. For example, the Saudi autocracy, which has been armed to the teeth by the US government and other Western powers. The state of Israel, which is committing the crime of apartheid against the Palestinian people. Uh, The dictatorship of Egypt, which according to human rights watch is operating a torture assembly line and has committed crimes against humanity against its own people. So uh, whether directly or indirectly, there is no state in my opinion, which has done more to subvert democracy and the cause of human rights in our lifetimes than the United States government. And I think that any truly principled foreign policy that we are going to pursue has to take uh, cognizance of that fact, and we must act upon it. And I don't know that, I, I don't pretend that that's going to be an easy thing to do, especially because successive conservative and liberal governments have increasingly enmeshed our economic uh, destiny with that of the United States. We need to disentangle ourselves from the United States to the greatest possible degree, regain to the greatest possible degree, our own economic and political independence and pursue a truly sovereign foreign policy that respects the principles that that international law and human rights are universal. That is going to be a long-term struggle, but it is one that we must pursue diligently and courageously if we are going to actually live up to the image that we have of ourselves of being a country that is committed to human rights and is a a fair and neutral arbiter of international disputes. Right now, that is little more than sad joke. That is not what Canada is. Canada has, for all intents and purposes, acted as a vassal of the United States government in the post-World War II period. And so I intend to pursue if I'm granted the privilege of being the leader of this party, a truly principled foreign policy, there will be no exceptions uh, in my foreign policy for human rights for those states that are deemed by the United States government to be allies, nor will I fabricate human rights violations or exaggerate the human rights violations of those states that are deemed by the United States government to be its official enemies. All oppressors will be treated equally and all victims will be treated equally. And if we're a country that is what we claim to be, then that is exactly how we will conduct our foreign policy. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to all of you. And uh, I'm happy to engage you in a vibrant discussion. And uh, you know, we can talk about specific foreign policy crises around the world or matters of principle. But uh, I look forward to having a great conversation with you all this evening.
0: Thank you very, very much, Dimitri. Uh, That was a great way to start things out. Uh, For those who are watching, uh, my name's Brendan. I am the co-chair of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, along with Doug Brown, uh, the sponsors of today's event. And uh, one of the reasons, the main reasons we're here today, of course, is to hear as much as we can from Dimitri, to learn as much as we can about his positions. And so we're going to have a lengthy and highly involved question period um and uh i it's while it's possible for me to read the questions that have come up on the uh screen in the comments section i know a lot of people um want to get to it right away and i think we're gonna use all methods if people want to raise their hand either physically or using the hand raising on zoom um, i will be able to unmute people and put the questions over to dimitri I see some people raising their hands already, so that's that's great. Um, so I'm gonna, we're gonna take questions from all, as much as the audience as possible, a wide range of people. I just ask that you keep your questions free from discrimination. We don't want any homophobic or sexist or racist comments or anything of that nature. Uh, please keep your questions relatively short. Uh, we won't have time for monologues from everyone. That's for Dimitri to do. He gets to do the monologues, so <laughs> yeah. I, what we're going to do uh is uh i see questions and i see some people had uh, been raising their hands or asking questions from the start so i'll get to them first i think maybe i'll go with henry he had been here from the beginning and had been talking so i think uh i'll go with henry evans tenbrink we'll give him the first question yep hi dimitri
2: um hi, i am amazed at how similar our our uh, family histories are um, i have a great uncle who was also the victim of uh, Nazi reprisal in the Netherlands. Um, He was uh, shot in reprisal for an attack on a Nazi unit. Um, Anyway, uh, Dimitri, um, as you know, for 500 years, First Nations have been fighting uh, for recognition as as sovereign nation states. And um, um, you may not know, I was involved. I was in um, Gennesadage in 1990 during the crisis and worked with the people there defending their land. so I'm wondering what uh, what uh, what you will do to um, to uh, recognize uh, First Nations sovereignty as as uh, as sovereign states.
1: Well, the current state of the law in Canada is more or less to the effect that uh, the federal and provincial governments have a duty to consult in good faith uh, First Nations in regard to uh, the exploitation of the resources. Uh, under their sovereignty, uh, the exploitation of their land. But if the courts deem the consultation to have been sufficiently robust and conducted in good faith, uh, and the, the the First Nation, uh, uh, First Nation or First Nation community, Indigenous community with whom the government or an extractive corporation is negotiating rejects the project, the obligation. Uh, of the first nation community the indigenous community is to put up with it uh, so what we have is effectively a duty to consult i think that what we absolutely must implement into canadian law is the principle that indigenous groups have a veto an absolute and inviol- inviolable veto over the exploitation of their lands and resources it's not sufficient and not, not to be sufficient for uh, us to consult even in, in good faith if at the end of that process Uh, the Indigenous community does not want uh, the extractive project or whatever other so-called development it may be uh, to go forward, then we have an obligation to respect that choice. And it should be uh, the decision makers who, according to the traditions and customs of the Indigenous community, they should be the ones who uh, uh, who determine whether or not the project goes forward, the legitimate and traditional spokespersons of that community, and not some body that has been set up by the canadian government to act as the uh, ostensible representative of indigenous communities for example band councils so i was recently out in caledonia uh you know i i, I was standing in solidarity with the land defenders there uh at uh, mackenzie meadows uh a land development uh or so-called development uh that is being promoted by the municipal government and i was told by one of the land defenders that in a recent band council election Uh, There was uh, the the band council was ecstatic that they had achieved in excess of 4% turnout in the election Uh, that that was the highest level of uh, uh, Turnout that they had ever seen that that could hardly constitute by whatever reasonable measure of democracy You may use a legitimate representative of the people of uh, the six nations people and in any event um, You know, this is this is something that we as a a state have to finally come to grips with that indigenous peoples have the final say. And secondly, we need to, uh, you know, ensure stable and robust, uh, financing for, uh, the developmental activities on first nation lands. And so I've been, I've been, I have a uh, a, a consultant to my, an indigenous consultant to our campaign by the name of Diane Longboat, a traditional teacher from six nations. Yep. And Diane and I have been talking about a proposal that's being developed by the assembly of first nations, according to which, uh, indigenous communities around the country would be entitled annually to a percentage of Canadian GDP, uh, so that they wouldn't have to beg and go hat in hand to the federal or provincial governments for aid for specific projects, but they would have stable, robust, and predictable financing, uh, that was not subject to the political vagaries of, you know, one government or another. I am fully supportive of that concept. It's just a question of what is the appropriate formula, but uh, a, a percentage of GDP seems to me to be one that is eminently sensible and the only way that we can both uh, adequately compensate Indigenous peoples for the genocide to which they have been inflicted and ensure that they achieve true sovereignty going forward. So there's a lot more that can and must be done, but those are two broad concepts which I am very committed to, and I think are essential to the uh, establishment of true First Nation sovereignty.
0: Okay, wow, Dimitri, thanks for that detailed answer. Um, uh, What we wanna do is we wanna take questions uh, from the audience as diversely as possible. Uh, We'd like to take questions from female identified members and so on so don't be afraid to raise your hand uh in the meantime i'm going to just be picking from people who have had their hand up for a while maybe we could uh potentially go with uh gregory here gregory gillis i see you had been raising your hand
2: uh yes uh thank you uh dimitri i just uh so impressed by your candidacy and what you're bringing to this uh discussion I just wanted to uh, commend you for your raising of the Palestinian situation. The courage that it takes to do that uh, in this climate uh, is exceptional. And um, we know that uh, Zionist groups uh, attack people as anti-Semitic for this. And you know, I know you have been subjected to this already by Ben B'rith and so forth. And uh, again, uh, I just want to offer my support on this to you around this, and if you could just articulate a little bit again of your position on the Palestinian situation, Gaza, and the West Bank, uh, which is the third rail in politics in anywhere in the West, really, particularly Canada and the United States.
1: Yeah, Canada is you know about as complicit in the suffering of the Palestinian people as any state in this world, which is one reason why, I, as a Canadian, feel obliged uh, to. Uh, advocate for the Palestinian people as vigorously as I can. Uh, I'm responsible for the acts of my government, as Noam Chomsky so eloquently argued when he was constantly attacked for criticizing the foreign policy uh, record of the United States government. uh, This is something I have uh, a direct obligation to to address. Um, You know, my my history and my personal uh, evolution when it comes to understanding the plight of the Palestinian people is decades in the making Uh, I first went to Israel when I was uh, in my early 20s. I I dropped out of university after three years thinking I'd go become a writer in Europe and uh, just traveled randomly across Europe and the Middle East with a backpack by myself. And I ended up taking a a flight from Ladinika in Cyprus to Tel Aviv. And when I arrived at at that point, I had very much uh, the view, uh, the mainstream view of Israel uh, that is propagated here. uh, It was democratic society, robust protection of human rights. Uh, An island of democracy in a sea of barbarism, uh, confronted by existential threats on all sides. I was completely of that view. And I got off the airplane at Ben Gurion Airport and uh, I was taken aside. We were asked to descend the plane and get on the tarmac and claim our luggage from the uh, cargo hold. And when I did that, I was taken aside and I was put into the back of a van by uh, a security uh, 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 official. And in the back of the van, there was a little round table, I'll never forget this, it was bolted to the floor and there was a light bulb overhead and two chairs bolted to the floor. And he sat there and he interrogated me for an hour. And he kept asking me why I, uh, you know, a non-Jew would come to Israel by myself. He couldn't understand that. And uh, eventually, because he wasn't willing to accept my explanation, they took me into the back of the airport to a security room and uh, they strip searched me and disassembled every item in my possession Uh, But ultimately, they allowed me to enter the country. And then uh, I could go on and on about experiences on that trip. But the other one that stood out for me is uh, I ended up staying in a youth hostel in uh, East Jerusalem. And uh, I managed to uh, get on a bus full of Palestinian workers to go to Hebron, not because I wanted to see the occupation, just because I wanted to see the tombs of the patriarchs. And I didn't know at the time that there was a 24-hour curfew in place in Hebron. So when I got off the bus, all of the workers scattered and went immediately home. And I was left in the streets by myself, roaming aimlessly, unable to ask anybody for directions. And I ended up coming upon an Israeli checkpoint and an Israeli soldier in combat fatigues uh, pointed an assault rifle at my head. Uh, So that was a bit of an eye opener for me. (laughs) And and fast forward to 2016, I went to Israel, not again for purposes of advocating for the Palestinian people, but because I had to do some work related to a class action against a Canadian gold mining company, uh, which was using slave labor in Eritrea a lot of the slave laborers had fled the country and ended up in Tel Aviv, so I went there to collect their evidence. And after a week of doing that, I was invited to the West Bank by Rehab Nazal, a Canadian-Palestinian artist who a few months earlier had been shot by an Israeli sniper while she was photographing a a skunk trunk in Bethlehem. And she took me around uh, the West Bank and I was absolutely appalled by what I saw. Uh, It was far worse than what I had seen when I had gone there in the 80s. You know, apartheid was visible in all parts of the West Bank. Segregation was visible and palpable and extreme. The harassment, the confinement of the Palestinian people, the naked theft of their land, it was all there to see. All one had to do was open one's eyes, and when I came home at that point, I was the uh, justice critic in the shadow cabinet of the Green Party, I, I thought that, you know, as a matter of conscience, I had to bring forward a resolution supporting BDS. And uh, I did that over the objections of the party leader, Elizabeth May. Um, and uh, to my amazement, and in large part, I mean, I would say primarily because of the extraordinary work of Palestinian solidarity activists around the country, including at independent Jewish voices and Canadians for justice peace in the Middle East, and other wonderful organizations, we managed to prevail. And the, uh, it was a, the, the resolution was adopted by a large majority over the objections of the leader, something that almost never happens in Canadian politics. And I'll tell you that in my entire life, up until 2016, until that struggle, I had never once been called an anti-Semite or a supporter of terrorism. I was 52 years old at the time. I was completely unaccustomed to those kinds of attacks. The moment it became known to organizations like B'nai B'rith that uh, this resolution was being uh, advanced by me, and uh, that there was a real prospect of it passing, I was suddenly subjected to every imaginable smear. I was called a Greek Nazi. I was told that uh, a fatwa had been taken out on me by some shadowy organization in Malaysia. Uh, you know, uh, All kinds of uh, hateful commentary started flooding my inbox. And in the press itself, I was I was subjected to really hurtful. You know, it's not just uh, reputationally damaging; it's hurtful to be uh, described in this way, Uh, especially when you're profoundly committed to anti-racism. And uh, it's only gotten worse over time. And uh, I'm I'm one of the fortunate ones because I, at the time that this happened, I was for the first time in my life economically secure. So, you know, they couldn't take away my livelihood from me. But there's so many other people the vast majority of people in the palestinian solidarity movement they're extraordinarily vulnerable especially the young ones on university campuses and uh what i what is done to them by pro-israel groups the reputational sabotage that is inflicted upon these young people and other activists who of limited means i think is absolutely unconscionable and it's disgraceful that our politicians are uh you know part of this exercise of demonizing the defenders of Palestinian human rights. Uh, So I'm fortunate to be somebody who can do this. I can endure those attacks because I'm not economically vulnerable. Uh, So, uh, you know, I feel I have an obligation to kind of stand in the front line and do that. Uh, But I'm, you know, never, I have just uh, endless admiration for those who don't uh, find themselves in the fortuitous position that I'm in and nonetheless take, uh, endure those attacks on a daily basis.
0: Thank you for that powerful answer, Dimitri. Um, We have several more questions coming up. Um, First, I should mention there's a gentleman named Andreas, Andreas, who uh, does not appear to have access to audio. So I will read out his question not too long from now. I noticed that uh, Susan has raised her hand and I we wanted to get to a female member of the audience. Uh, so w- w- I'm going to ask Susan and then I'm going to get to Richard Denton afterwards as he has had his hand up for a long time as well. So uh, first of all, I'm going to uh, go over to Susan and uh, ask for to unmute so she can ask the question.
3: Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Hi, Susan. Uh- Very good to see you, Dimitri. Very good to see uh, members of the uh, Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, a lot of great people uh, with us today. Um, I've been overseas for about five years, I'm back now. And I'm really happy to see what's happening with Dimitri and the Green Party. It's very encouraging. All of the work in social justice can be debilitating. It can be overwhelming can really exhaust a person so dimitri i love your positive energy you. <laughs> seriously it's amazing and like you're on this whirlwind tour across canada i can't get over how many cities you're visiting every day and keeping oh, up whatever. these <laughs> and keeping up like really good spirits and positivity so please take good care of your health and your spirit so that you can keep this up and and bring it into the new year
1: thank you
3: so I'm wondering, um, how are the senior members of the Green Party responding to your current platform and and the success that your campaign is having?
1: Uh, you know, it's um, uh, trying to be diplomatic here. <laughs> so uh, there is a wing of the party that is, uh, I would say, ferocious in its opposition to my candidacy. Uh, there's a group of... Uh, I would say 10 people who seem to be singularly committed to destroying my reputation on social media. Their names keep popping up again and again and again. I uh, will I must tell you that perhaps the most disappointing thing that happened to me was uh, on the day, first of all, as some of you will know, I had to overcome an adverse decision by the vetting committee uh, on my leadership contest application. Um, I was uh, informed after putting together a meticulous uh, set of materials in support of my application that it had been declined. I was not given any reason. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I, I uh, was not even told who the decision makers were. There were three anonymous individuals. There was uh, quite a bit of an uproar about that. Even people who don't necessarily see eye, to eye with me on politics were quite upset about the fact that I wasn't being told why because I think you know they felt, and I certainly did, that you can't mount an effective appeal when you don't know the basis of the decision that's been rendered against you. And so after 48 hours of a lot of controversy, the vetting committee disclosed to me on one page its reasons for declining my application. Uh, and I've been told that I'm not at liberty to disclose those reasons. Uh, but I don't think that any of it would surprise anybody on this call. Um, and. I then submitted a 16-page response and uh, I had the opportunity to speak to a five-person appeal committee, the leadership contest committee, whose identities were known to me. We had a face-to-face call over Zoom and they uh, thankfully allowed me into the race and I think that they did the right thing and they decided that ultimately whether they agree with my politics or don't, don't, it's up to the members to decide. But then on the very day that the decision to let me into the race was announced, the president of the federal council Jean-Luc Cook uh, smeared me on his Twitter feed on that very day when I was led into the race. Jean-Luc Cook actually debated me in 2016 at the University of Ottawa. He wasn't the president of federal council at that time, but he was a fellow member of the shadow cabinet on the question of BDS. And I think it's fair to say that Mr. Cook is quite uh, you know, uh, supportive of the state of Israel, maybe not unequivocally so, but he certainly is more supportive than uh, I'm prepared to be. Um, and and since then, there has been a cascade of smears, frankly, I've had to deal with. It's the same people, it's a small group of people. And uh, I have lots of reason to believe that there are other people more influential than them within the party who uh, don't wanna see me succeed. Uh, I think a lot of it doesn't have to do with Israel. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm a declared eco-socialist. And there is a right wing of the party that is uh, you know, opposed to uh, a shift to the left. Uh, and they would be opposed no matter who the, the candidate was, who was advancing it. So uh, there is a group that is uh, you know, quite determined and influential, I think it's fair to say, uh, to prevent any candidate, like for me, me, from winning the leadership. But I think that the, the base, a uh, very large proportion of the base, how much, mm-hmm. I don't know. We don't have any polling data, is very, very supportive of this vision. And they're very supportive of the Palestinian cause. They're very supportive of a truly principled foreign policy. Um, you know, there, there, was a, uh, there was a poll done, uh, first of all, the, B, the, the resolution which ultimately emerged from this struggle in 2016, with, which calls for sanctions on Israel and we're the only party in Parliament that has a policy formally calling for sanctions on Israel, was ratified by over 90% of uh, the persons who voted, uh, and a very large proportion of the party's members voted. Uh, you know, there was a poll done last year uh, by Forum Research on Canadian attitudes towards socialism and 58% overall had a positive attitude and the Green Party, the number was 69%. And something in the range of 60% of Green Party members had a negative view of capitalism. And one of our core values is nonviolence. Another one is social justice. So I think at the level of the base, there is a strong commitment to the type of program that I'm advocating for, uh, but there is a right wing of the party and a number of those people occupy positions of influence and uh, you know, they're opposed and they, they will do what they can uh, to prevent a candidate like me uh, from, from me like winning. I don't think that will surprise anybody on this call. I mean, we saw what happened to other candidates in much more complex and challenging circumstances, like Bernie Sanders in the United States, Jeremy Corbyn. You know, the establishment will put up ferocious resistance to a truly progressive, principled foreign policy, domestic policy, and to transformational changes that affect the power of the elites. So there's no surprise here. Uh, it just underlines, underscores the importance of us being unified and all of our allies coming together to support a campaign like this. I certainly can't do it alone. Uh, I need all the help I can get. Thanks, Dimitri. Uh, getting a
0: lot of interest here. People are still joining the meeting, actually, even now. Um, and uh, there's a lineup of people that want to talk, so Um, I I mentioned earlier uh, Richard Denton had had his hand up for a long time, so I'm going to ask Richard to unmute and uh, we'll go over to his question.
4: Thank you very much, uh, Dimitri. I was uh, very impressed uh, with your introduction and I've been impressed uh, with your uh, webpage. I'm with uh, physicians uh, for the prevention of nuclear war and so uh, Uh, My colleague, Helen Caldicott, has endorsed you. uh, And so I'm very impressed with that. My question is, uh, we have the Green New Deal. uh, That's going to cost money. Where is the money going to come from? And I was wondering, uh, uh, from the the military point of view, um, uh, the president to the south of us has suggested we go to 2% of our uh, gross national product to support the military. What are your uh, views uh, on that? Mm-hmm. And uh, if you could just sort of comment on how we're going to pay for social
1: programs and sure. interaction with the military. So the, of course, the 2% of GDP requirement, as many of you will know, is the NATO guideline for military expenditure. Uh, I think we should get out of NATO as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, this is a, an organization that is militaristic, it's destabilizing large parts of the world, it's heightening nuclear tensions with Russia and China. Uh, when you look at the distribution of US uh, and allied military bases across the world and the total expenditure by NATO countries, which is a large multiple of China's and Russia's military spending combined, the notion that this is a defensive alliance is completely preposterous. This is a belligerent, offensive military alliance that is bent on global hegemony and we should get out of it as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, And quite apart from its destabilizing nature uh, and its anti-democratic nature, uh, there is this whole question of what are we going to do with the limited resources available to us to uh, save our planet and convert our economy into one that is sustainable and socially just. We cannot be spending money on merchants of death, foreign military bases and uh, other militaristic operations when we need to be devoting every dollar at our disposal to resolving the climate emergency. There is no military threat confronting this country of any significance, let alone one that is comparable to the threat posed to our country by climate change. And we have the largest undefended border in the world. We have no hostile military force on our borders, on our coastline. Uh, You know, people say, oh, well, we need to protect the Arctic sovereignty uh, from the Russian menace. Well, if that's the case, why are we sending our military troops and our naval vessels to distant parts of the world and not stationing them in northern parts of the country to defend the Arctic sovereignty? I mean, it's it's a joke to suggest that the reason why we're spending all of this money is to defend our sovereignty in the Arctic. And there's no realistic prospect of the Russians, you know, invading our Arctic uh, lands anytime soon anyways. So I think we should be setting the standard of demilitarization in the world. And I'm, I'm calling for a 50% reduction in military spending. And I think ultimately on a longer term basis, we should be talking about the complete demilitarization of this country. Uh, if anybody can do it, Canada can. And that would give us a moral stature on the world stage that this country has never had. And we could really influence a, a global peace movement in a way that we cannot now with our shredded credibility. Uh, so in terms of how we pay for this, I'm a proponent of, uh, well, let's, let's, I'm going to talk to you about something called modern monetary theory in a moment. But before I get there, let's put that aside. Modern modern monetary theory is basically the notion of that the the central bank of the country uh, should create sufficient currency to fund indispensable and socially productive programs. Putting that aside, let's suppose that we didn't have that option available to us. Well, we uh, accord preferential Uh, tax treatment to investment income, which disproportionately favors the wealthy. The federal government, a 2018 reputable estimate was that the federal government loses $75 billion a year in tax revenue by according preferential tax treatment to investment income. Uh, We are spending, as I mentioned, $32 billion as of 2018 on so-called defense. Uh, You cut that in half, you got $16 billion that you can put towards productive, socially productive uses. We spend $3 billion a year on fossil fuel subsidies. We should be uh, imposing a top marginal tax rate of 75%, this is what I'm calling for, on the highest income earners. This is by historic standards actually low because for much of the post-World War II period, the top marginal tax rate in Canada and the United States was in excess of 90%. We don't have an estate tax in this country. We're the only G7 country that doesn't have an estate tax. So billionaires can bequeath their massive estates without paying a penny of estate tax. So I'm calling for us to have a 45% estate tax on large estates, which is in line with the uh, tax regime we have in France. There are huge potential sources of revenue available to the government through uh, the creation of a fair tax system and by ending uh, socially destructive uh, and environmentally destructive Uh, programs and expenditures, like the military and like fossil fuel subsidies. But putting all of that aside, you know, modern monetary theory simply posits that a state which has control of its own currency and uh, whose debts are denominated in that currency can effectively never go broke because the government can always generate more currency to service the debt. And if you want to learn more about modern monetary theory, I suggest you check out the writings of uh, Stephanie Kelton, a U.S. economist who was an advisor to the campaign of Bernie Sanders, or another a wonderful Australian economist by the name of Steve Keen. And there are many other modern monetary theorists. And, and, and you know, so basically their view is we don't even need to tax the wealthy. I, I say we need to tax the wealthy for democratic purposes because they're accumulation of extreme wealth is a corrosive of democracy. They use it to manipulate the political system and the legal system to their advantage. But according to modern monetary theory, you don't actually need to tax the wealthy in order to fund social programs because the central bank can do it by creating sufficient currency to, uh, to, to fund those expenditures like a Green New Deal. There is one constraint on money creation, and that is when the economy is operating at effectively full capacity, money creation can generate inflation. Uh, And in the worst case scenario, hyperinflation, but our economy is nowhere near operating at full capacity and is not likely to be doing that for the foreseeable future. So, you know, uh, hyperinflation is such a remote threat in the current economic circumstances that the Bank of Canada should be creating massive amounts of currency to fund an immediate, profound and historic Green New Deal.
0: Okay, Dimitri, uh, with, with regard to your recent uh, statements there on NATO, um, it looks as if there's a couple of related questions uh, that pertain to that. So I'll just read them out. The first one is from Andreas, who posted in the comments earlier. He said, hi, Dimitri, how would you deal with military conflicts that originate by non-USA, uh, non-US countries like China versus Taiwan, Russia versus Ukraine, and conflict in Syria. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was the related question from Jean-Luc who asked, how would you compare the situation in Greece to the Ukraine crisis? So I'll, I'll let you take those two. Uh,
1: well, I think, you know, first of all, all international relations should begin with diplomacy. All conflict resolution should begin with diplomacy. And uh, I think the tendency now is to shoot first and ask questions later in international affairs. Uh, So we don't, we, you know, one thing that I'd like to say is the art of diplomacy is seeing the world through the eyes of your enemy. Try to understand that whatever flaws your enemy may have, whatever human rights violations it may have engaged in, certainly governments around the world, including those of Russia and China, have engaged in human rights violations, absolutely. I think we have to be candid about that. But they have legitimate grievances with the West. Uh, And so, for example, Russia was promised by, uh, you know, Gorbachev was promised by the elder Bush and uh, Reagan that NATO would not expand one inch eastward. And they did exactly the opposite. Uh, You know, in the Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, there was a coup d'etat, which was essentially engineered by Victoria Newland, a senior official of the State Department. And uh, as a result of that, Russian speakers in the Ukraine and people in the U- in Crimea, uh, predominantly Russian speaking, felt threatened. And uh, there was a referendum held in, the, in Crimea in which the turnout was, as I understand it, in excess of uh, 80% and over 90% of those who voted uh, decided that they wanted uh, to merge with the Russian Federation. So if you look at that situation and you compare it to what happened in East Jerusalem in the 80s, when uh, Israel formally annexed East Jerusalem in flagrant violation mm-hmm. of the Geneva Convention, how did the West react to that? The West said, oh, we're going to deepen our economic and military ties with Israel. But when Crimea, uh, the people of Crimea, voted for merger with the Russian Federation, we, re- we responded by imposing severe sanctions on Russia. So, you know, it's not surprising that people like Putin, and I'm no fan of Putin, None at all. But it's not surprising that Putin would say, This is hypocrisy. You know, you have no moral authority to tell us that we can't merge with Crimea as a country when you yourselves are deepening your economic and military and political ties with a state which, by your own admission, is violating the Fortune a Convention by illegally annexing East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, and now potentially the West Bank. Uh, so we have to have the moral authority to go to these countries like China and Russia and say, We insist upon you uh, protecting, respecting international human rights and international law. We don't have that moral authority now. We have to engage them in a full and robust diplomatic discourse. If and when that fails and all diplomatic options have been exhausted, then I believe the appropriate course of action is to employ economic sanctions. But the economic sanctions must be designed to deal with the violators of human rights and international law, and not impose suffering on innocent populations, which is not the hallmark of Western sanctions regimes. You look at what has been done to Iran, what was done to Iraq, which was it was criminal, what was done to Iraq, and what's being done to Iran and to Venezuela. There was a reputable study that over 40,000 civilians in Venezuela have been killed by the sanctions regime, the United States and its allies have imposed upon Venezuela. So the sanctions have to be designed in such a way as to deal with the perpetrators and, avoid, to the greatest possible degree, any suffering to innocent civilians. If that fails, then the appropriate step is through multilateral Charter, in accordance with the provisions of the United Nations Charter, and even then, the military action should be done in a way that is, uh, that causes minimal harm and is proportionate to the wrong that is sought to be addressed if you can't do it in accordance with the United Nations Charter, which was set up precisely to deal with these sorts of international crises, then military action should not be resorted to, end of story. Uh, Unilateral military action, so-called human rights interventions carried on by the militaries of the West have caused far more harm than good. Uh, So that is the general pattern or the, the structure of approach that I would take in terms of dealing with international conflict zones and human rights violations by other states, whether it be Russia, China, any other country or a, or, or a Western ally.
0: Thank you, uh, Dimitri. And uh, we have a couple of questions. Uh, first, there was the second part of Jean-Luc's question. He was asking, um, what is your stance and, or position uh, or program on inclusivity and accessibility? Uh, so that was a question and uh, second, I received a message uh, from Robert and I'm gonna unmute him here as uh, he has also been uh, waiting to directly ask you a question. And yeah, I think you're good to go, Robert.
2: Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, cool. Uh, So first of all, I've been really impressed with the campaign uh, and that you're bringing all of these things into the discussion. Uh, What I wanna know for those of us who Uh, rejoined or joined the party because of your candidacy can you explain to us uh, a bit about what the process is like the upcoming vote what happens after the vote uh, and possible strategies Uh, I don't know if I'm assuming there may be if there was like say a second or third ballot how all of that works I'm not familiar with the process myself
1: well uh, first of all let me reiterate I think this was said at the outset that uh, If you're not a member of the party, I would urge you to become a member of the party as quickly as possible. The the date by which you must do that to be eligible to vote in the leadership Mm -hmm. contest is uh, September 3rd. And I'll say a little bit more at the end, but just briefly, you go to my website, hit the donate button and you can, it'll take you directly to the membership sign up page and you can become a member for one year by paying $10. 14 years or older, you're eligible uh, as long as you're either a citizen or a permanent resident. So beyond that, once uh, you know, the membership, or the, the, the voting population is fixed, and that'll be done as, as of September 3rd, um, you know, there's going to be about two and a half weeks more of campaigning. Uh, there's going to be, by the way, a foreign policy debate, which I think is going to be very interesting because I'm quite confident that it's going to reveal some stark differences between the candidates that haven't yet necessarily emerged in the many debates that we've done it's uh being hosted by rabble and judy rebic will be moderating uh, so i do urge you to watch that and tell your friends about it um but then the uh the voting will be conducted online i believe the start uh, date of the voting is september 26. it'll go on for i believe about five days and it's a ranked ballot Uh, so you know you should not only be thinking about who your number one choice is but who your number two and your number three choices will be and you can rank all of the candidates i think there's probably going to be seven somewhere between six and eight candidates on the final ballot there'll be at least six Um, and so you need to you should think about you know who your other choices are because second and third place is going to be very important in terms of determining the outcome so you only cast that ballot once you don't keep casting ballots and you can do it online Uh, and you know uh, as the votes are tabulated Candidates are going to be struck off the list, the ones who score the fewest number of votes until one person uh, emerges uh, with a majority.
0: Okay, you got a comment here from Mina, says you are doing a great job.
2: Thank you, Mina, (laughs) thank you.
0: Uh, so uh, just with regard to membership and enlisting, um, depending on how you sign up for membership to the Green Party, I understand your donation or, or the, um, the fee you pay can go directly to Dimitri. Um, in the Facebook page for this event on the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War website, it's indicated at the bottom, there's a link uh, to how to join the Green Party. If you follow that link, it goes to the Dimitri join Green Party section. And I think the, uh, the $10 goes to Dimitri's campaign. Uh, that's my understanding of that process. In fact on that note, um, w- in fact Ken has been waiting a long time to ask the question there so I think uh, what I'm going to do, I'll unmute and uh, you've been waiting all more than an hour so I'll, I'll let, you, uh, let you do that. Hi Dimitri, very good uh, presentation, impressive. Um, I have a question uh, and that is what is your view of the arrest and extradition of Hmong Wanzhou in Vancouver.
1: Well, this is you know emblematic of the hypocrisy of uh, Canadian government foreign policy. Um, you know, she is accused by the United States government of having committed fraud in connection with uh, a scheme to evade sanctions on Iran. Um, as many of this of the people on this call will know. Um, The Obama administration negotiated a a deal which was widely supported, it was hated by the neocons in the United States, but it was widely supported by Western governments, pursuant to which uh, very considerable restraints were imposed on Iran's ability to develop a nuclear weapon. And I just want to pause there and say, you know, while I am absolutely uh, supportive of efforts internationally to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons, There is a deep-seated hypocrisy in what was demanded of Iran, because, of course, Israel has the Middle East only nuclear arsenal and is the only state in the Middle East that refuses to accede to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So, demanding that Iran uh, surrender all efforts to develop a nuclear weapon while allowing Israel to have a very significant and dangerous nuclear arsenal, which is not subjected to the inspections regime under the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty, Uh, That is the height of hypocrisy. But in any event, I did support a deal that would effectively ensure that Iran would not develop a nuclear weapon. And Iran, as was certified by the International Atomic Energy Agency, was respecting the deal. It was complying with the deal. But Trump nonetheless decided to pull out of it uh, for no reason other than reestablishing American hegemony in the region and undermining uh, a government which was unwilling to do that, whatever its flaws may be, and it has many, the government of Iran. you know, it was nonetheless complying with the deal and the singular reason for which the Trump administration pulled out of the deal is not because it, can, it, ha- it cares one iota about the human rights of the Iranian people, but because it wanted to crush this regime, which is opposing American hegemony in the region. So this is the backdrop to what is happening here in Canada. This executive is being pursued by the American government for evading a sanctions regime which was profoundly unjust and not even remotely designed to benefit the people of Iran, the innocent people in Iran who are suffering uh, from the sanctions to this very day. So we as a government should have kept our nose out of this. It was not our place uh, to seize this executive of a company. And by the way, what happened, and I don't defend what, what China is doing at all. Uh, it does appear that it is engaged in retaliatory measures against two Canadian citizens, And I would, as prime minister, demand that they be released immediately. But it was entirely predictable, entirely predictable that China would retaliate against this unprincipled, uh, and frankly, uh, you know, uh, the word that comes to mind is obsequious uh, measure by the Canadian government to placate the Trump administration. We have now been sucked into a dispute between two superpowers because our government doesn't have the wherewithal to tell the Trump administration no. That's exactly what it should have done. And the only way we're gonna get out of this mess, I don't think there's any realistic prospect of us bringing home those two Canadian citizens unless we reject the efforts of the Trump administration uh, to get custody over uh, this Chinese uh, executive. There's no prospect at all. Uh, so Mr. Champagne, who can, he can complain all he wants about what is being done, but ultimately uh, the solution to this problem is for us to release the chinese executive and to bring home our canadian citizens
0: okay comment at eight o'clock from gregory he said no canadian politician speaks truth like this remarkable Uh, so great Mm -hmm. um there someone posted a long question just a moment ago and it was uh another foreign policy question getting a lot of foreign policy (laughs) questions uh it's Hi, Dimitri. It's from U- Yuri. He says, Hi, Dimitri. Great to see you again and glad to see- <laughs> He's happy to see you. And he says, glad to see so much popular support for your campaign. My question is, I don't know about Canada, but the U.S. has imposed criminal sanctions slash collective punishment of the people of Syria due to the government's ability to resist the Western Gulf-backed war on the country. Do you support what Tulsi Gabbard wanted to pass, which is the quote, stop terrorism act, quote, which would see the end of the war in Syria and Yemen and Western support uh, for the Saudi Arabia, Qatar and the UAE, which exported all those groups into Syria.
1: Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't, I'm not familiar with the the details of Tulsi Gabbard's uh, bill, but the principle that you've articulated, uh, you know, absolutely, I think we should withdraw support for all of these deeply repressive regimes, military, political, economic support, and we should get our troops, Western military forces out of the Middle East forthwith, and let the peoples of these countries determine their own fate. That's what we should do. And if there are you know, violations of international law and, uh, and or human rights abuses being committed by any of them, following our withdrawal of our military forces, we should deal with them in the way that I've described First, exhaust all diplomatic options. Secondly, employ uh, sanctions, economic sanctions that are applied strictly to the human rights abusers and do not cause suffering to innocent persons, and only in the most extreme and intractable of cases, uh, resort to the mechanisms of the United United Nations Charter to take whatever military force is necessary to protect the innocent. Uh, That's how we should deal with it. We are not doing any of those things now. We're not engaging in any meaningful diplomacy. We're not using sanctions that are designed to avoid suffering to innocent persons. And we are not using the multilateral mechanisms envisioned by uh, the, the, the world governments in the aftermath of the Second World War.
0: And that was the session hosted by the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War called Zoom to Elect Dimitri. It's currently on the front page of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War website at hcsw.ca, so you can look there to get the video.